You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, or welcome to your first time if you haven't listened to us before. Uh, we do recommend listening at least starting at the beginning of Judges, right? because um, we're in that series. We've been in that for a little while, um, but it's been fun so far. And uh, I think I'm just, enjoying this more than Genesis, actually. I kind of am, too. Um, after, after the first uh, the introduction, that was a little slow, but... Well, you know, you've got to have the setup, and that's the problem. Most people don't want to push through the setup. It was still interesting. I mean, it, don't get me wrong, but we're in the, the really fun stuff now. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think as we get through uh, Chapter 7, I mean, this is a fun story because we're getting ready to talk about the battle itself. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to get into Chapter 8, which we don't usually go past Chapter 7 when we teach this in Bible uh, settings, like a, a church or Sunday sure. school. because. Chapter eight is just messed up and it kind of detracts from the heroism of, of Gideon. And so that's the part I'm looking forward to getting into. But, you know, we want to be thorough and we don't want to just skip over to our favorite parts. We want to actually talk about what the text says and, and be okay with what the text says. Right. And that's, that's, I think that's huge for a lot of Christians just to, to be okay that sometimes things the Bible has in it are disturbing. Yeah. It's weird. Um, our heroes all have clay feet. And like you say so many times, the, this really is a story about God. Yeah. And no human is going to do it right. Right. Exactly. So speaking of humans who don't do it right, we've got Gideon. <laughs> we do have Gideon. So we're in actually um, chapter 7, verses 19 through 25. And this is the famous battle. Mm-hmm. He's got the 300 men uh, that God has kind of winnowed down to from his original ar- uh, army of 32,000. Mm-hmm. He's going up against 135,000 uh, Midians and Amalekites. So, so basically it's like school, the school districts in Oklahoma. Um, <laughs> right, sending this, the teachers in against the students. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> no, no. Well, we started with this much. You know, we're going to winnow that down. But somehow it all kind of works out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, most of the time, hopefully. So, sorry, but I think God's more involved in this battle. Yeah, I think he's much more involved in this battle than a lot of the administrators are in the school districts. But um, I'm not we going to get going, too political. I can't really say we don't do politics. Remember, so this is education. Okay, and you are personally invested in education. So okay, we'll we'll let you have that one. So, but on with our battle because one thing that um, the teachers don't have are torches trumpets and jars normally your wife might <laughs> uh, well yeah she is the music teacher um no we have the jars in the art department okay our 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 school the art they actually throw clay so that's pretty awesome i i would have loved to have been able to do that in school but anyhow so and, we even have a kiln okay now i'm jealous so moving on sorry <laughs> but the the um the supplies were actually gathered up from the men who deserted, which I think is an interesting little tidbit. Okay. So everybody was able to have for their own a jar, a torch, and a trumpet. And we talked earlier uh, um, in the Song of Deborah when we were discussing that music is very much a part of warfare. Mm-hmm. So to have musical inter- instruments involved wouldn't have been that strange. And right. um now they are going to get used in kind of a unique way because each one has, each man has this. So they don't have the ability really to swing a sword. I mean, their hands are full. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't even make sense to me the way it's all put together. You have a jar, a trumpet and, and a torch and a torch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've been thinking about this too, because if you get a torch, which essentially is a stick Mm-hmm. that's on fire. It may or may not have a rag and some kind of accelerant on it. I yeah, don't know if they probably you know, pitch or tar at this point. Yeah. Uh, and they've got the jar over the torch to hide the light. And so they're supposed to, um, in unison, smash the jars to reveal 
mm-hmm. blow the fire of the torch, and they're supposed to shout a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, and then blow their trumpet. Right. So this is, to say the least, a unique battle plan. <laughs> and, but it really, it makes sense. Because well, I'm th- I'm thinking of carrying a lit torch under a jar. Right. How hot was that jar? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, I, I don't understand how that happens, but. Yeah. You would think you would put it out. Yes. That, yeah. Because, I mean, like, I've actually, okay, this is the way my mind works. I'm like, can I, like, recreate this and see how it would work? Could it, should I get some torches and clay jars and try to experiment <laughs> with, with this? Seeing with the little clay flower pots you get yeah. from Home Depot. <laughs> right. And honestly, it's, that's something I would do in my spare time because this does intrigue me. Um, but there, there is method to the madness. And okay. we're going to see this. And we're going to see this because this connects to other points uh, of storytelling within the Bible. And remember, we talked a whole episode on retellings and how they help us inform, uh, you know, one story informs another. And mm-hmm. the scripture really talks to itself uh, in various ways. So. The Midianites, they're down in a valley. Mm-hmm. And so this is at night, they're asleep. And as the Gideon and his troops approach, they're making their way down the mountains on the sides of the valley. Mm-hmm. And they get jarred awake <laughs> out of a deep sleep, no pun intended. <laughs> I saw exactly where your mind went. Uh, but they, they're startled. They're startled awake. Jerked out of a deep sleep, and they have got to put all the pieces in place to figure out what's going on. And you know, that's hard to do on a good night, let right. alone something, <laughs> let alone like, when you're awakened in the middle of the night, right? On the eve of a battle, and the, the mountain is covered with light that's mm-hmm. descending towards you. There's this trumpet blast, there's this big yell, and one thing that everybody knew in this culture, gods lived in the high places. Okay. Gods descended from the mountains to participate in warfare. Oh, uh, okay. I see where yeah. you're going with this. So this, the Israelites knew it, the Canaanites knew it, the Midianites knew it. Everyone gets it. So when you're waking up and it's your worst nightmare, mm-hmm. what pieces of the puzzle are you going to put into place. Uh, probably not the right ones. Probably not the right ones. And the, the fun part too is if we go over to second Kings and this is chapter six, verses 17 through 20, Elisha is praying for his servant to be able to see God's army. Mm-hmm. And the Lord it opens the eyes of the servant and he looks, and this is, um, I forget which verse this is particularly. And anyway, the servant's eyes are open, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Right. So I think what the Midianites were seeing was God's coming after us. Yeah. And this is why they become so confused that they begin to turn their swords on each other. And Gideon's men, all they have to do is stand in place. They, they don't even have to advance once the madness ensues. And... They they just wait until the Midianites begin to run away. Mm-hmm. And that's a great picture of faith because the idea of faith in, in Hebrew is, is to stand. Yeah. That, that's, that's it. Just, just stand. Uh, God wins this war. Gideon doesn't even have to raise a sword to, to win this particular battle. And in fact, he may not even have one. Yeah, his hands were full. It's never mentioned. <laughs> it isn't. Well, other than when the men call out, a sword for God and, and Gideon. And the question is, should that and Gideon have been added? Okay. Was, was that God's decree or was that something that Gideon commanded them to, to say? Okay. And, and there's reason to question that. So, um, you know, God wins this battle and Gideon, instead of going, hey, God got me through this with the 300 men and we should still rest and rely on his power. He calls for reinforcements in verse 24, and it's to cut the Midianites off from water. And two princes, and Oreb and Zeb, 
I like those names. Uh, Oreb and Zeb are captured by Ephraim. And Oreb is killed at the Rock of Oreb. Okay. Isaiah 10.26 still calls the place by that particular name. Okay. Zeb is killed at a wine press. And now we've come full circle. Right. Because we began the story in a wine press. And the full reversal of circumstances where mm-hmm. Gideon was cowering in fear from the Midianites. Now he has one of the kings uh, who's been killed at a wine press. And Ephraim actually marches out to meet Gideon with the heads of these two kings and presents them to him. And so Gideon didn't capture them himself, but he is involved. You know, he's being honored right. by Ephraim. And there's some questions that we need to ask is, should he have called for reinforcements? Should he have accepted the, the heads of these princes? And should he have continued with his pursuit? Right. Because we don't have any mention of God commanding him to do any of these things. He was just supposed to get them out of the valley. And real, God never speaks again through the story of Gideon after the valley. Hmm. After that, God's silent. And we all know that's never a good sign. Right. So, uh, and the, the answers to our questions really, the, we don't find them until chapter eight. And chapter eight, like I said, it, it's so disturbing because Gideon, every hope we had for him that was being built up is going to get shattered. Okay. And so, you know, Gideon himself has undergone this massive transformation. He has gone from that cowering guy in the wine press to, to this conquering hero. Um, he's not cowering, he was, but he's not wholly dependent on God anymore. He, he really is making moves on his own. And he's almost, as we read this, I, to me, he comes across as a bully. He, mm-hmm. he really comes across as a tyrant. And so as we open up with chapter uh, eight, verses one through three, Ephraim, they're mad. Uh, They were not part of the troops that Gideon had originally summoned, and they didn't want to be left out. Now, you have to ask, were they really left out, or or do they just want to be on the winning side? I mean, everybody likes to be with the winner. But Gideon's response is very telling, because he, when he talks to them, it's very placating. And he said to them, this is verse two. He says, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of a bazir? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. Now, he is placating. He's flattering. Mm-hmm. He is... So much the politician here. Right. I, I, I can't think of a more political speech in the Bible. Uh, Gideon knows that the victory that they won in the valley was nothing short of miraculous. Right. And it's not so much what he says here, it's what he doesn't say. He doesn't point them back to God's role in anything that God has done mm-hmm. or that even Gideon's accomplished. He doesn't remind them that he was just following God's orders. Right. And most of all, he doesn't use God's proper name. He actually uses the more generic Elohim. This is how the Midianites referred to God. Okay. And up to this point, Gideon had always used Yahweh. Hmm. So moving away from that personal idea of God, we're starting to see kind of a shift. And it, it's kind of foreshadowing what's, what's going to happen. And, and what he's really doing here is great politics. Okay. Lousy theology. And so, uh, yeah, that's, there's some application in that. Yeah, I've never heard of that (laughs) happening before. (laughs) So, as we keep going forward, the story just continues to deteriorate. Gideon continues to to deteriorate. And the basic summary is Gideon's pursuing the the Midianites, Mm -hmm. and he's, he's driven his men to the breaking point. They're hungry, they need water, and... They, they just need the fuel to keep going. Sure. And this is the original 300. Now, what I think is interesting is these 300 men had this undoubtedly supernatural experience with Gideon as their leader. Right. They stick with him. 
and, and it kind of makes me wonder about, you know, I know in my own life, I've had situations where I've had like this amazing encounter with God, with somebody, a friend or a, a leader in church or what have mm-hmm. you. And then they stumble. And I know people have stuck by them during that time of stumbling. I'm not saying like. You're not, you're not. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I'm not I, saying I wanna... that you abandon someone who stumbles, but sometimes you need to step away from their leadership. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Okay. That's what I thought you were saying. Yeah. Is that, yeah, if we don't want to, we don't want to just completely just continue to blindly follow someone right. when they, when they're leading you into error. Right. And I think that's really what we're seeing here because this is, well, the story's just going to continue to reveal what's going on. So basically Gideon goes to the city, Sukkoth, to give it and ask, give us food, give us mm-hmm. something to eat. And his request is refused and Gideon becomes enraged. He is not happy about this at all. And he promises that he's going to return once he's captured the Midianite kings. There's two more kings on the run. Mm -hmm. And he tells the people of Sukkoth, I'm going to flail them and with thorns from the wilderness and briars. So he, he is not just going to beat them. He's going to beat them with thorns and briars. Mm -hmm. This is savage. Right. This is above and beyond. Uh, then Gideon goes to uh, Penel and he makes the same request. And he, once again, he gets refused and Gideon is enraged and he promises to return and pull down. Evidently, they had some kind of tower that was either a military application or mm-hmm. something significant to the city. And he says he's going to, to pull it down. Uh, so all of this happens and we're going to be at verse 10. And in verse 10, Gideon finds the Midianite kings. He attacks with his 300 men and the, the Midianite army panics much like they did in the valley mm-hmm. and the Midianites and the kings flee, but Gideon pursues them and captures, captures the two kings. And this is where we, things really start to get interesting because Gideon does return to Sukkoth and he takes the kings with them. And as he gets close to the city, he captures a young man and he has the young man write down the names of the 77 elders of the city. So this is cold, calculated maneuvering here. Yeah. There is nothing impulsive about it. It's Gideon is making plans and he's making plans on his own. And then he, he assembles the leaders together. And he reminds him, them of their promise. He reminds them of why he promised to do this. And he does. He, he flails them with um, thorns and briars. And so then he goes back to Penel and he breaks down the, the tower and he destroys, he breaks down the tower and he kills the, the men of the city. Okay. So these are Israelites. Yeah. These aren't Midianites. These aren't Canaanites. Now, if we want to make this a positive reading, and there are people who try to make this a positive reading. Good luck. Uh, yeah. Gideon is the rightful leader, and he's executing rightful judgment on traitors and people who fail to support him that he should have been able to rely on. Right. Where's the command? Where, where did God tell right. them? Yeah, God, God never said to do that. Yeah. yeah but I mean... I mean, I, I, I think it sounds to, to me, I, in, you know, if I were in that position, mm-hmm. and of course I'm not Gideon, uh, but if I were in that position, you know, I would be thinking there needs to be some kind of retribution, but I think, or some kind of, at least, uh, not necessarily retribution, but some kind of chastisement and, and being like, Hey, wh- where were you guys when we were fighting the Kings? Right. Well, but at the same time, God had already sent people home. God had said, you know, get rid of them. Right. So, you know, God's methodology was a small troop operating in faith and obedience. And Gideon, he's called for reinforcements. He's pursuing beyond where God has told him to pursue. And you know, I don't think we can really support the idea that this is a positive thing. And especially as we proceed with the story, because as we get into to kind of picking apart the threads, God's not mentioned. Right. The only time that God is mentioned is in verse seven, and it's in Gideon's oath. 
And we know that when someone uses God's name in an oath, they're serious. They're serious. And usually it's done out of anger. Mm. It's not necessarily a sense of reverence and awe. It's, you know, by God, I'm going to. Right. That, that's kind of the, what I get from it. And I'm not the only one. And what is also similar, interesting is that the two battles are similar. The, both times the, the Midianites get confused and they turn against each other and they flee. And that similarity there is more, it, it's presented almost like a byproduct from the first battle, mm. not something God causes for the second battle. Cause God, again, not present in the battle, right? Never, never spoken of in the battle. Um, in verse seven, when Gideon threatens to, to flail the leaders with thorns and briars, in verse 17, he, he changes his language. When he comes back to fulfill his promise, mm-hmm. he says he's going to teach them a lesson. He's not going to flail them this time. He's going to teach them a lesson. Yeah. Now, there's two different translations here. And one is that, yes, I'm going to teach you a lesson. And the other one is thresh. And that he's going to thrash them. Mm -hmm. And so there's a good um, debate on which one is correct. And basically the the two words have very similar letters, but there is the final letter of the teach lesson, the the word for to to teach a lesson Mm -hmm. um, is an ion, which kind of looks like a Y. Okay. And the one for thrashed is a sheen. Okay. A sheen kind of looks like a W. Okay. So if you look at a Y and a W together and you can see how if you a, a W loses its leg, it yeah. might look like a Y. Sure. And it's that same thing. So that's kind of, kind of give a mental picture there for that this is how simple it could have been that it could be either one. Okay. So you, we don't really know. I think the thrashed actually fits better with the narrative. Because we've already seen that the writer has brought us, you know, from the wine press to the wine press. Mm-hmm. And we, now we have threshing and th- uh, or thrashing from, mm-hmm. so I think literary wise, it, it actually yeah, yeah, makes it, more it sense. It kind of mirrors itself. Yeah. I think it makes more sense. And it, it makes us really think about who Gideon was whenever we started the story. Yeah. And the story really should have ended here. We shouldn't have gone any further. Or maybe we probably should have even ended it back in chapter seven. Uh, that Gideon. <laughs> well, that's where we like to end it, right? <laughs> well, that's what we, we do. But the final clue and the reason why I think that we can't have a positive reading uh, really is in verses 18 through 21. And I'm just going to read those And then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? And they answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said to them, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them, saved them alive, I would not kill you. And he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as a man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. These are the verses okay. that make it all make sense. All right, go ahead. Go back to that young man, that, that man hiding in the wine press, who was so embittered against God. It's because he lost his brothers. His brothers had been killed by these Midianites. Okay. He had every reason to be afraid. Not only was this like a national catastrophe. I mean, when we take, think about our nation being at war and, you know, we've, we grew up in the time of Desert Shield and Desert Storm and mm-hmm. all of that and Afghanistan and all of the stuff that went on with that, that was so far removed from us. We may, and we knew people who served, but their experience was even removed from us. Mm-hmm. Gideon was there. It was his family that that was killed. Right. And so and, and it's the mother the brothers from the same mother. These are the closest living relatives that he has. Yeah. You you don't get any closer than that. We already know when we talked about in Genesis uh 
the sons of Jacob. It's the brothers who were from the same mother that had that devotion to each other. Right. And especially we saw that with Joseph and Benjamin. Mm -hmm. And so because Gideon had the, this, this personal vested interest, I, I think this is take, causing him to go above and beyond what he should have gone. Right. Uh, we, we know that this kind of behavior, it's wrong. We, we saw that in chapter one of Judges with Adonai Bezek when they cut off his thumbs and his toes and make, make a display of him. Right. This, this isn't a good thing. And Gideon is not acting like an Israelite at this point. He's acting... Like the Midianites. Yeah. He, yeah. He's acting like the, the people he, he's been around. And... Now, for seven years, this had been going on, and because it, it had been going on so, so long, the fact that these kings could recognize these men, they knew that they were, they were Gideon's brothers. Mm -hmm. they, they knew who he was. We've got, we understand that they understand, we understand that they understand. Yeah, they knew who, who Gideon was. <laughs> right. Well, they understand even the, the political situation of the Israelites at this point. And they get what's going on with Gideon's father. They know who he is. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is an act of vengeance. This is an act uh, of uh, personal revenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so... When we cross that line from righteous war, which is an interesting concept in and of itself, <laughs> uh, into vengeance, we're out of line. And Gideon would have known this. Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine. And you know, this is God mm -hmm. talking. Deuteronomy uh, 32, 43 says, rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes revenge on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him. And cleanses his people's lands. So Gideon should know what is expected of him. Mm -hmm. Now, in defense of Gideon, some people are really, they, they really attempt to, to make this about Gideon um, doing the um, work of a kinsman redeemer of that, that blood avenger that mm -hmm. we have talked about yeah. in Leviticus. But we've got to remember the Midianites were sent there by God to discipline Israel for their worship of Baal. Sure. Gideon's family were Baal worshipers. Right. They had already chosen death. Mm -hmm. this, this was what God had, had determined was appropriate for people who did the things that Gideon's family did. Right. Uh, the other thing, deaths of loved ones during war were not to be avenged ever. Because if you died in war, this was the will of the gods. This was not just Israelite. This was across the board. Hmm. Okay. So if you now if you could avenge someone who was killed during a time of peace because that doesn't make sense, you know that that's kind of a mindless violence. Right. But if you're talking about during war, now if you try to avenge someone you're saying the gods were wrong. And that's not something you get to do. Hmm. He's not acting in faith that God's going to honor his words and like I said, he, he really is. He's acting like a Canaanite at this point. And it, it's kind of disheartening because he was our hero up to this point. Yeah. And now we're seeing that, that all of that influence from his early years is coming back and it's being manifest. And there is an interesting phrase in here when they say in verse 18, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. Okay, so I'm going to do something I, real, I, I try not to do a whole lot. This is a really bad translation. Okay. Um, it's been contextualized by translators. And this is where sometimes when you know the Bible, you get into trouble. Okay. And you actually just need to pay attention what's on the page. Okay. So go ahead. Because, well, what they're doing is, the translators know that in the time of the judges, there is no king. Sure. And the first king that, that we're supposed to see is Saul. 
But the Hebrew literally reads son of the king, Ha-Melech, the king. And, you know, Midian's got four king. And so they know what kings are. If if they had meant a king, they would have said a king. Mm -hmm. They they are being very specific. What they're doing is identifying Joash as the king of Israel. Right. Um, And he fits the bill. We already, you know, he's rich, he's influential, he's a patron of a holy place, he's yeah. the father of noble sons. Uh, Gideon's identity is bound to his father, and his father, you know, it's important that he's Gideon's son of Joash. Right. So Gideon's father was somebody that Midian had stepped up to, to pay attention to. And this is the first hint about the idea of kingship in Israel. Okay. Never before just do we talk about a king for Israel. This is the first time that we get the idea that the people might want this, that this might actually be a natural development in, in this nation. Okay. So, you know, Joash may not have been a king as we would identify a king. He may not have even had the title within his group of people, but he functioned in the role sufficiently enough that outsiders recognized him as okay. such. Which, which would have made sense if he was act, acting like a priestly role. Right, right. And that's the thing. I, I think a lot of times we forget that Israel was unique in that the king and the, the kingship and the priesthood were distinct. Sure. And most nations at this time, the king was a priest. Right. And that, that's kind of an interesting th- uh, hallmark of, of Judaism. So then Gideon, oh dear Gideon, verse 20 and 21, when he calls on his firstborn son to kill the king and the boy freezes. And I think we're really supposed to remember that boy in the wine press, Mm -hmm. the one who doesn't want to go to battle, the one who's not going to chase after foreign kings and isn't going to threaten to destroy towns and, you know, hurt his own Israelite brothers. Right. And we're kind of, we're compelled to, to sympathize with, with Gideon's son. And we're reminded that Gideon was once afraid of his father. And his father actually reacted with compassion and sided with Gideon. And Gideon doesn't, there's no compassion for a son demonstrated. There's no, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's just not there. and. The thing is, Gideon's son's correct at this point. He's doing the right thing, not gil- killing these kings, at least not like this, not in this fit of rage. It, it's, he recognizes how wrong it is, that it is an act of vengeance. And so, or at least we're forced to think of it as such. He may not have gotten it completely, but, you know, because he, Bible just says he froze because he was young. Yeah. But it forces us to think who is about who is right and who is wrong in this, in this moment. And, you know, and Gideon allows himself to be goaded. He, he allows himself to be taunted and tormented Mm. in, into reacting and, you know, lesson for us all. Don't do that. Uh, I I think that goes back to what we were talking about in one of the the previous episodes, you know, when you're secure, you, you don't get angry. Right. And so, Gideon still has some doubts, but it's coming out as anger now. Yeah. It's not coming out and, and going to back to God with those doubts. And that's the interesting distinction I see. When he had doubts at the beginning of the story, he didn't explode into anger. Mm-hmm. He went back to God. And, and, when he, and when he stopped going back to God, then, he's, then when he stopped, when he stops paying attention to what God's saying and doing, yeah. Then, yeah, then he loses his security. Well, I think you know, that's a good question, I think, for any of us who, who battle with anger, um, which is actually one of my favorite emotions to play with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it is where, why are we reacting this way? Right. And, and am I going back to God with whatever it is that's causing me to be angry? Um, quick little psychology lesson. Anger is a secondary emotion. It's never a primary emotion. And so usually it's covering up fear, pain, or frustration. Mm-hmm. And so if you will deal with the fear, pain, and frustration head on, you can bypass a lot of that anger. And, and this is the thing. I, I think Gideon is feeling some fear mm-hmm. and some pain. I mean, we, we, 
we know he's fearful by nature. We, um, the pain of losing family members. And, and then the frustration at the fact that the rest of the Israelites didn't just bow to his whims. Right. They, they didn't just fall in line. He had to teach them. Well, what was he having to teach them? I think what he was teaching them is, don't defy me. Right. And so the, there's a little detail at the end of that section about him taking the crescents from uh, the necks. Yeah, that was, that was the one I had a question about. Okay. So these ornaments were, um, only certain people got to put them on their camels. Okay. Uh, they're, they're gold and they uh, represent royalty. And so we're actually going to talk more about that when we get to verse 26. But the fact that Gideon takes the symbols of the kings mm-hmm. as his own, that is significant. Okay. So uh, the men of Israel, this is verse 22 through 23, they said to Gideon, rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the, the, land, the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, he is, again, at this point, using the name of Yahweh. So we've got a little shift here. Okay. What's interesting about this, there's a few things that are interesting. Uh, There always is. But one of the things that's interesting here is they're asking him to be the king. And they're recognizing that kingship must have that, that hereditary element to it. Sure. If you don't have a successor, you're not a king. You, you might be a ruler, you might be a tyrant, you, you might be a despot, but you are not a king unless the kingship falls to the next generation. Right. So this is the reason why even Paul, Saul is kind of questioned whether he actually technically managed to be a king of Israel or whether it was David, because Jonathan never ruled as king. Hmm. So, yeah, but there, there has to be that, that line of heredity. And, and they're saying... We're willing. We, yeah. we are absolutely 100% willing to do this. And now, almost every Bible teacher, if we're talking like Sunday school teacher or somebody who uh, isn't really studying the scripture, will read that and go, oh, look, he did the right thing. He refused the kingship. Yay, Gideon. And, yeah. and that's what we want. Uh, almost every responsible commentator will say you're missing the point okay (laughs) (laughs) so because he he we really do um we have all the have to have all the pieces in play to see what's happening and the first piece was given at the beginning of of the chapter when he addresses ephraim and Mm -hmm. he the politically smooth speech yeah when he starts placating and the false humility mm -hmm, uh uh-huh and he's willing to invoke God's name for his purposes, but he never mentions him again. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's telling. Um, we won't talk about politics today with that one, but we could. Anyway, <laughs> of course we could. Gideon's father had a kingly standing in the community, and it was established by the statement of Ziba and Zalmunna when the son of the king. So we know that Gideon was already in line to to receive this position in his community. Um, the rest of the pieces are going to be, be um, presented as we continue. So at verse 24, Gideon says, let me make a request. I won't be your king, but let me make a request of you. Everyone give me the earrings from his spoils. Okay. And so a man throws down a cloak and everyone takes an earring and Gideon collects 43 to 49 pounds of gold. Right. I don't care who you are. That's a lot of gold. It's a whole lot of gold. <laughs> and then he has the golden crescents from, from the camels. And he also has the royal garments of the kings of Midian. And he makes this golden ephod and establishes a place for it to be displayed. We're going to talk about what that is. I see the question. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I'm, I'm, yeah, go ahead. I'm, I'm curious about a few things here. Go yeah. Ahead. Well, and then the children of Israel, they whore after this golden ephod. And so let me restate this in, in, in some clearer terms. He collects a tax. Uh-huh. He's not just collecting any tax. He's collecting the tax, which are spoils, spoils of war. Spoils of war, particularly from Midian, as we... Well, I, I'm curious, is, is 
are we going here with him? He's saying, when he's saying, I won't rule over you, but God will, is he kind of saying, he's he's still, in his actions, he's still accepting the role. And so is he setting himself up as the voice of God? Is that what he's trying to do here? I, th- I think there is. I, I think he, he's not only setting himself as the voice of God, he's setting himself up as the God-appointed leader of the nation. Yeah. 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 And saying, you know, oh, well, you know, you know, it's, it's kind of like whenever, you know, I hear this all the time and I'm, <laughs> I'm going to complain about this a little bit. And okay. So it, it's really funny, you know, we're, we've put such a high price on humility in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, we should, we should be humble. Right. We, we, and, you know, and I, I really hate the fact that so many people use the word pride when they should use hubris. Right. Um, and, and so we have a lot of, you know, a lot of people in church who play music or, or sing or different things like that. They, I see this a lot in the worship leader groups every now and again, uh, probably every couple months someone will ask a question and they're like I feel really awkward whenever people compliment me because I feel like I'm accepting accepting praise or worship from them what do I need to do and then uh, you know you always have the person that's like I just tell him it's just all Jesus it's all God he's the one who who makes it happen and it's like okay I kind of get what you're saying but at the same time you're you're kind of falling into that false humility trap. You know, mm-hmm. you say, thanks, I'm glad to serve and move on or something right. like that. You don't, you don't try to make it super spiritual. You put in the practice because God led you to put in the practice. And, you know, not saying you're stealing praise or anything. But, right. And, and it's not a bad, oh, here's the other thing. It's not a bad thing to be praised. Right. I think we, we overemphasize this and we hyper-spiritualize the word praise. <laughs> if I tell my wife, she made a wonderful dinner. Um, I am praising my wife. Mm-hmm. Have I committed idolatry? Not one bit. Um, you know, I, I mean, yeah. I, I love my wife, but I don't think she's a deity. I mean, we've, we've, we know each <laughs> other well enough to know where this goes. Uh, so, um, but there is, it, it, but it's, it, we're, we're not offering our highest praise. We're not offering the kind of praise that we would to God mm-hmm. to say, hey, we think you're qualified for this position. Mm-hmm. And you can go, oh, yeah, I think I am qualified by this, for this position and humbly accept it. Right. Versus the false humility of going, well, I'll rule, but it's not going to be me. It's only through God's wisdom and, and greatness that I'm going to be able to you know, it's, it, it's that politician it, speak. Yeah. And, and that's, and yeah, that's kind of what, as I'm reading through it, I'm like, that's what this reads like to me. It's sleazy. Is Yeah. I mean, it really, it's, it's the slippery. Yeah. So. Yeah. And th- that's the thing. Because I mean, even though he is refusing the title, functionally, he's fulfilling it. And just like his father was. And if you look at, you know, we, we talked about those, this characters of Joash. Well, and see, see, to me, it doesn't even sound like he's refusing the title. Mm. It sounds to me like he's saying, I'm going to be doing this, but it's going to be God working through me. I'm going, like he's putting himself in that divine appointment like a Pharaoh. Okay. So is what it reads like to me. Okay. So I, I think you're, you're actually probably very right because, uh, and we're going to get to that because I, I just wanted to point out one thing about the taxes so I don't lose it. Okay. Because uh, we're going to come back to that, but your point. Um, not only is this a tax, like I said, it's a spoil of war. And spoils of war, specifically for Midian, uh, were, they were brought to God. We find this in Numbers 31, verses 48 through 54. There's a war with the Midianites after the whole Balaam and Phineas incident that we mm-hmm. referenced earlier. And you know, Israel's successful. They win. And the men bring the gold to Moses. Mm-hmm. And it's as an atonement. Well, let me just read verse 50. Sorry, Numbers 31, verse 50. And we brought the Lord's offering what each man found, articles of gold, armlets, bracelets, signet rings, and earrings, and beads to make atonement for ourselves before the Lord. The key phrase, we brought. Mm-hmm. And so, and we, we know that priest, priests don't take in the Old Testament. 
Right. They, they, they receive, but they don't take. And anytime a priest takes, like what we find in First Samuel, mm-hmm. there's a problem. And right. God's going to clean house. So um, the, the third thing where he makes this, this ephod, um, now there's two types of ephods. So this is, can, can be confusing. Okay. The first is it's a garment worn by a priest. And obviously this, this isn't a garment like a priest would wear it could, because it's made out of gold. Um, in the historical books, an ephod, it seems to be some type of grave. And in historical books, this is Joshua, 1st and 2nd Samuel, Judges. First it's, it's like some kind of idol yeah, or statue. Yeah, exactly. And there's a connection between the ephod and the teraphim. And the teraphim, remember we talked about that with Rachel. That was what she stole the idols from Laban's house and took with her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, later, Michael's going to use a teraphim to, to disguise the fact that David has run. Um, but the ephods were often clothed in a golden uh, vestment vestment of some sort. Thank you. That worked. Uh, yeah. So they have this golden cloth that, that they wore. And so you remember in an earlier episode about this, we brought up the point that uh, Gideon was clothed in the spirit of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And now he is possibly clothing an idol. Mm. And so we have a reversal, but we have it in the wrong direction. Yeah. And that's kind of, um, it's sad. It's sad. Uh, And we do, and we've got biblical reason to think that this is appropriate, um, kind of an appropriate uh, interpretation because Ezekiel 21, uh, verse 21 through 27, uh, speaks of covering the teraphim, uh, is removing the covering from the teraphim is God's way of humiliating the God represented. Hmm. Uh, and the and also humiliating the worshippers and the king of Babylon is using the the teraphim in Ezekiel to receive oracles. Yeah. So and also we have an Akkadian um, cognate very close to the word ephod that is specifically used for the word specifically the word for covering of the an idol. Okay. So we think possibly what's going on here is that that Gideon is clothing this idol with with this gold cloth of some sort, and what he's really doing when you put all of the pieces in place, both from Ezekiel and from the Akkadian, what we wind up is Gideon's creating a space where he can receive Oracle from God or the gods. Hmm. So we're back to, I'm going to receive the word of God and I'm going to, to speak on his behalf. And the creating sacred space is an act of a King. Mm -hmm. His father did it, but then David and Solomon, through joint effort to build the tabernacle, this is what they do. You, hmm. you don't build sacred space unless you're a king. The question that really jumps out at us is, which God is he trying to contact? Yeah. In establishing this place of worship, is he really trying to maintain his relationship with Yahweh, or is it one of the other Canaanite um, Deities, most Christian commentators, they're going to outright condemn this act or they're going to dismiss it. Jewish commentators, they, they don't like that. They, yeah, well, we try to, got to make him a hero. Right? Yeah, Gideon was honoring the God of Israel and uh, his mistake was not in doing this, but was by putting it in um, Oprah, uh, Op- Op- Oprah, not Oprah, uh, Oprah, and uh, instead of at Shiloh. Is what they what they claim. Okay. Now there there's a legitimate reason to read read it this way because if we go back to to Exodus 32, you know, God's Moses has gone up to Sinai. He's gone for several days. The people are panic, and they demand that Aaron make them gods mm-hmm. to go mm-hmm. before us. And Aaron in verse uh, verse two says, "Take off the gold that is in your ears of your wife." So mm-hmm. we're back to earrings, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. And then Aaron makes the golden calf. So mm-hmm. in verse four, if you notice the language he uses, these are your gods, Elohim, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So yeah. he's identifying this golden calf as, with, Yahweh. as Yahweh. And he even says in verse five, tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. Mm-hmm. So he's not making a golden calf as a representation of some kind of Egyptian god or Canaanite god. He, he is making this to, to, represent Yahweh himself. Yeah. 
And I think we miss that sometimes. I think we, we tend to read this as, oh, he's trying to construct this idol to a foreign god. No, he, he is trying to, to represent God to the people. And God, you know, we are the representation of God on this earth. Right. We're, we're God's image and we're God's image bearers. And so there is reason to think that, that Gideon, who had grown up in this pagan culture, just like the Egyptians coming, I, I, the, I'm sorry, the Israelites coming out of Egypt, people who had grown up in this pagan culture, mm-hmm. who didn't know any better, did the best they knew. Right. Now, the thing is, the problem with that is when we look at Gideon's opening speech to God, he knows his history. Yeah. So he should have known better. Right. And I think sometimes this is really something I, I see Christians today fighting with, or they should be fighting with. The idea that just because culture says this is how you worship God, if it's against the word of God. Right. Put it down. Step away from the wildebeest. I yeah. mean, this is not a good thing. Yeah, it's, it, yeah it really is. I mean it's a struggle and and we do have that going on i mean we you really see um so many people i mean just bending on on issues and matters that the bible straight up says don't do this mm-hmm. and yeah it it and, and i find it interesting that we have so many people uh so many christians are willing to listen to you know well if you love you know the the world's view of what love is. And if you loved your neighbor, you would do this. If you really loved people, you would do that. And we're sitting around, we're running around trying to be like the Dutch boy in the, in the dam. And, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're, right. we're, we're, we're just trying to plug all the wrong holes and, and said, instead of trusting God to, to take care of it and, and focusing on our business and we're, you know, and doing what we were told to do. Just, yeah. Just being obedient. And really, this is this is the ongoing problem with kings in particular. I think it's a problem with believers in general, but kings in particular, this idea that if we do things our way, it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, Saul, he does it whenever he offers the sacrifice, despite the fact Samuel tells him not to. Mm-hmm. David mm-hmm. commands the ephod be brought to him so he could inquire of the Lord instead of allowing the priest to do it like he was supposed to. Mm-hmm. Solomon sleeps in, the, um, in Gibeon to seek out God. So kings are really bad about thinking they can bend the rules to suit their own desires, and even good kings. Yeah, well, and it's actually, you know, you, you mentioned Saul, and I, this is kind of a something that just triggered, you know, because uh, uh, Samuel tells him, you know, to obey is, to better, is better than sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying we don't take care of people. And I'm not saying that, you know, before I say what I'm going to say, I want to make sure we're, I'm not saying that we shouldn't care for poor people. I'm not saying that we shouldn't watch out for others. But there are times when I, you know, like I was talking about, like everyone's trying to define what the church should be doing. And if if we really knew how to love people, we'd be doing this, that, or the other. And, talking about all the sacrifices we should be making. And it's like, um, well, you know, it's still, it's still applicable. We should, before we look into, you know, what we should be sacrificing and what we should be doing and where we should be, you know, where everyone else says we should be doing, are we, are we obeying? Is it, is it obedience that leads us there? Yeah. And I know that's like such a sticky topic among Christians, the idea of obedience, because, you know, God just loves us the way we are. I, I agree. God, does love us the way we are, but love is never content to leave us the way it found us. Right. I mean, never. Um, so yeah. Uh, well, so these are, these are some of the things that's three ways that Gideon has, has kind of proclaimed himself or demonstrated that he, he is claiming the kingship, but it gets even better. Um, Gideon's also retained all the symbols of kingship. He retained the crescents from the camels. Mm-hmm. He's retained the, the royal robes and pendants. Um, so he, he's making sure that when people see him, they see king. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's also referred to with that di- dynastic title. Uh, so Jerubbabel, mm-hmm. the son of Joash. So when you talk about kings in the Bible, you know, Solomon, the son of David, mm-hmm. uh, th- this is 
a, a formulaic title. Um, Gideon lived in his own house, which this is, uh, what verse is this? Um, verse 29 in chapter 8 still. And Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. That word there is not lived. The word there in Hebrew is yeshav. He sat in his own house. And we talked about this with Deborah. Yeah. You, when you sit in the Bible, you are ruling. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he is ruling. He's not just living at his final days. He, he is, hmm. yeah, acting as an authority. Uh, so, I mean, we can go back to Judges 4 to Sisera sits and lived in Harasheth Hagoim, which literally he ruled from there. Uh, Psalms 29.10, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as a king forever. Mm-hmm. So we, we see this is a, um, this is an established formulaic statement in the Bible. Well, also. and we, we still see a carryover from that. I oh, mean, yeah. still in, in, in English, even we see, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, when we talk about like elections in America, mm-hmm. the seats up for right. election. Right. It's very much an idiom that's kind of, Cuts across all cultures. Yeah, in a lot but of we ways. just don't think about it in the same terms in, in America. Right. Uh, the seventh reason why he functionally fulfills the role of king, he has many wives and he has at least one concubine. So immediately we're thinking about Sol- Solomon there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, the eighth reason, you, know, you can see we're building quite the case. Uh, in verse 31, his concubine names his son Abimelech. Literally, she names him, my father is king. Mm -hmm. And so even though he's, uh, quote unquote, an illegitimate child, this is kind of like Fitzroy in in England, the the idea that, oh, the bastard son of the king is unacknowledged, but acknowledged. Right. So he he is to to have a son named this and he had to be okay with it because he could change the names. Right. So. In case anyone get lost, because I know that was a lot of things, he imposes attacks, he establishes his place of worship, he retains the Midianite symbols of kingship. He has the writer use the dynastic, or he is referred to by the dynastic uh, title. He rules from his house, he has many wives, and his son is literally named My Father is King. So (laughs) all things point to the idea that Gideon may have made the correct political little speech there. Mm. But functionally, he is absolutely 100% a king. The problem is he's a very Canaanite king. He is not an Israelite king. Yeah. He conflates the role of priest and king. He establishes the place of worship in his own choosing. You never get to do that. We begin that tradition with Abraham and Isaac when God says, you're going to go to the place I show mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Uh, David builds the temple where God shows him. So you don't get to, to make this decree on your own. Um, of course, he makes a graven image. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what the ephod, whether it was the clothing for the a graven image or it was the image itself, doesn't matter. He's still doing the same thing. Right. And he's identified here as Jerubbabel. He He is reminding us of who he was supposed to be not who he became. We, he was supposed to be the one who contended with Baal, mm-hmm. not the one who, who goes back into his father's old practices. And he has 70 sons. And you know, this is rare for a private household. You don't have 70 sons if you can't afford to feed them. Right. You don't have that many wives unless you can afford to feed them. Yeah, that's, that is very interesting. Well, of course, yeah. I mean, he collected a whole bunch of gold. Yeah, 43 to 49 pounds of it. But here's the other interesting thing. Remember we talked about Asherah. She's the mother of all 70 gods and goddesses of the Ugaritic. Oh, yeah. So we got this connection back to that. So it's, that number is very significant. His concubine, she's from Shechem. She's a Canaanite. So he's taken Canaanite wives. So he's in violation of God's command. And Abimelech is not only a statement of his father's status. Um, his, every time we see Abimelech in the Bible, he's always a dubious um, character. And his name can actually be read as containing a Canaanite God's name, Malak. 
And mm-hmm. he's a king who's also worshipped by Solomon. And we find that in 1 Kings 11.5. So we've got all of these connections back to Baal worship, back to what the Canaanites were doing. Gideon's not maintaining the, the relationship that had been revealed to him. And so we, we have some huge, huge issues with Gideon by the time he dies. And we, and when he dies, the people whore after the Baals and made Belbereth their cod. Now, Belbereth, you don't get a bigger slap in the face because this is God of the Covenant. Hmm. They are not just worshiping Baal like they were in the past. They're, they're worshiping a God because of his covenant with the people of, of Canaan. Hmm. And, you know, it's, you know, again, direct violation it, it's almost it's it's a hold my beer moment yeah <laughs> you know everybody else got it wrong but you know hold my beer i'm gonna do better and yeah. to to call Baal by that name the god of the covenant they're they're denying the covenant power of god himself right and that's just it, it's so sad and so um the the story just as it unfolds, you, you realize that Gideon wasn't the, the hero that he should have been, and he wasn't the king he should have been. And I know we're running a little late, but I've got like two pages here. And y'all no, are no, just gonna, you, we got we yeah, have a little time. They're just going to hang on for the ride. So, and um, we're like barely over, barely we over. way over a couple weeks ago. So we're good. Awesome. So one of the connection points that I think is easy to overlook in Gideon's story is it's tied to the temptation of Jesus. And the the temptation for Gideon was to take more than he should at an inappropriate time. Mm-hmm. Uh, kingship is specifically one of the, the temptations offered to Jesus. And, you know, Satan shows him the kingdoms of the world and says, all of these can be yours. Just, mm-hmm. just bow down to me. And, and what's, Gideon doing. He's bowing down to this graven image, this other God, and he he's receiving all of this acclamation from the the people in his land. And Gideon fails, and he fails big time. And the the thing is, um, when you just do a surface level reading of, of Gideon's resistance to being proclaimed king, it it almost sounds a lot like what Jesus says. And he was, Mm-hmm. And the, the words there are very similar, both in Matthew and here in Judges. But Gideon, I, I feel like he kind of tries to slip and slip around it and find a loophole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you, I say the right thing, then they'll have to make me king. Right. And there's no hypocrisy in what Jesus does. Right. It, it's an outright rejection. And the thing is, Israel can't have a king at this point. If you look at where they are in their developmental process as a nation, they don't have enough maturity to to make the distinction what's required in the Torah from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, God alone was the ruler, and the idea that that they should have a king in a land where kings re- represented an embodied image of the of a foreign god they they weren't prepared to make that distinction right and so they couldn't they couldn't go there without. Uh, without breaking that law. Now, Jesus, on the other hand, he does become the king. I mean, he is the king mm-hmm. and he is embodied God. We don't have to make the distinction. Right. And so Gideon tries to establish himself as the voice of God where Jesus is God. And so where Gideon fails the, the test, the temptation, I'm not saying he ever could have been Messiah, but we see how humanity fails the test. Yeah. Jesus passes it. Jesus surpasses it. And yeah. Yeah, that that is interesting. Yeah, I and, like that. Yeah, and and so the story of Gideon, if we read it in totality, it really lays the groundwork for what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is not only going to do the right thing; he's going to to do it better than anybody else has ever done it before. Mm-hmm. And where I I think when we read Judges, I think we need to grieve for Gideon because he had so much potential; he could have accomplished such great things, and, and instead, he he gives in to the temptation. Mm-hmm. He wants the riches, he wants the accolades, and he takes them for himself. Yep. And 
you know, uh, who of among us hasn't faced that temptation? And oh yeah, I, I I think that's the beauty of it when we we when we compare and contrast this great judge that we've all been taught to to honor as a hero, and then to turn around and see how even his feet are made of clay, and it's only in Jesus do we find one who is always going to put our well being above his own personal gain, at least this own temporal gain here on right. this earth. So that was, I, it, the story takes on a new dimension. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that, that's just, that's mind blowing when you <laughs> flip it all around and actually look at every side of it and see how everything comes through. But, well, uh, that goes back to that string picture we were talking about earlier and mm-hmm. all those different points of tension and contact. And I, I think if we can just, you know, keep going through your Bible, keep reading it, keep um, familiarizing yourself with the text, the more you, you read a passage and you mull it over and then go to the next one, you're going to start seeing these connections and you're going to start seeing how they interplay off of each other. Because I, I did not find that part about the temptation in a commentary. I did not find it in, in a book. And I'm not saying, oh, look at me. I'm so great. I've just, just thinking about it and, you know, mm-hmm. and the Holy Spirit, I think, kind of prompts some things. And because the information was already in my brain, it was there to be utilized. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's kind of what I got for Gideon. And then next week, we're going to talk about Abimelech and some of the fun things that he did. Yeah, Uh, so that'll be fun. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, well, everyone, thanks for joining us. Um, If you want to be part of the conversation, hit us up Raven Creek SC on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, RavenCreekSC.com, where you can find some other blog posts. You can find show notes for for this show and others. and there's also a little support link if you want to, you know, pass a few bucks to keep the show running. That's great. If not, uh, and you do want to help the show, be sure to subscribe on whatever you're listening to us on. <laughs> I mean, you're listening to us, but on whatever device or service you're listening to us on, subscribe. Uh, hit us uh, with a review if you like us. That would be great. And uh, that helps us out uh, a, a whole bunch. So. Anyway, we will see you next week and have a great one. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.